Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning to read in verse 1 through verse 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I know uh, many of you are probably familiar with the public television show, This Old House. Right? It was the home improvement show that invented home improvement shows. Before there was Fixer Upper and uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines and all these other ones that you can find, there was This Old House. Well, in the last three years of owning my own, my own old house, uh, I've become a bit of a fan. Uh, one of uh, my favorite recurring segments is the segment that they call, What Is It? For those of you who haven't seen it, it's pretty straightforward. The hosts of the show uh, introduce you to some obscure product, uh, some mysterious specialty tool, uh, and uh, each of the crew members uh, at the answering, uh, asking the question and answering it, what is it? They each uh, take turns making these wild suggestions as to what this thing might be and how it ought to be used. So they bring out a tool that's meant to straighten the fins on the back of your air conditioner when they get bent. Uh, you know, and Roger suggests that it's a long-handed, uh, long-handled mustache comb. Uh, they produce a tool for pulling framing lumber into position. Kevin says it's a corkscrew that's meant to open two bottles of wine at the same time. You get the idea. It's all very corny, and it's all very lighthearted, and the fun of it comes in hearing these sort of outlandish explanations for what these things might be. Now, aside from illustrating just how easily amused your pastor is, I think it also pictures for us exactly how humanity has approached the question of sex for just about as long as humans have been having it. The Lord himself is the one who's given sex to creation in the first place. He created it, and he created it good. He gave it to his people as a gift with a purpose. It's meant for something. It's meant to express intimacy and communion within the context of a marriage. Sex is given for joy and for enjoyment between a husband and a wife. It is meant to produce children for the sake of our species. A good gift with good purposes. But faced with the question of human sexuality, man tends to focus on its possibilities rather than its purpose. We tend to fixate on what sex can become rather than how God intended it. So you hear all sorts of outlandish suggestions for what we ought to think about and how we ought to use it in our lives. 
One person suggests that sexuality is really about personal empowerment. Somebody else says that it's how you express your deepest, your most fundamental personal identities. Another person says it's just pure old-fashioned pleasure, the kind of thing that, that ought to have no moral boundaries so long as it isn't directly harming another person. You hear those things all around us in the world, all around us in the culture. You don't have to go very far to hear those sorts of explanations about what sex is and what it might be good for. But I hope you realize, brothers and sisters, that these things should not be. Certainly not in the church. As Paul in this letter is turning the corner from the first three chapters where he was giving thanks to God for his work among his people, now to talking about what it means to live the Christian life, he focuses on what it means to live a life of holiness. A life that he says is pleasing to the Lord. And he is going to apply this into several different areas of our daily living. He's going to talk about holiness in relation to the work that we do. He's going to talk about holiness in relation to the way that we wait for Christ to come again. He's going to talk about holiness in the way that we think about and the hope that we have for our brothers and sisters who have already died in Christ. But the place that Paul starts is by applying holiness to our sexuality. He begins by teaching us that God takes pleasure in the purity of his people. This is the overarching point of this passage today in our study together, that God takes pleasure in the purity of his people. As we think about that, I want to unpack it in in three headings, three ideas that we should be thinking about together as we, we think about God's pleasure in our purity. We want to think first about God's intention. Secondly, I think we need to think about uh, our separation. And finally, the discipline of self-control. Intention, separation, and self-control. Now, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begins with, Finally then, brothers, and we might think that Paul is making a rookie mistake. You have heard sermons like that, right? The pastor says, in conclusion... Then he just keeps on talking for 20 more minutes. And here's Paul. Finally, brothers, Paul, you have two more chapters here. What are we doing? Uh, but he's not just introducing his closing argument. Instead, he's, he's introducing, here's what's left. Right? Here's, here's the remainder of your Christian life with the Lord. Consider where we are in the letter. Paul has just spent these three chapters, as I mentioned, giving thanks to God, encouraging the church for what the Holy Spirit had been doing among them. The gospel went forth and it made Christians out of idolaters. These people had believed and they are standing fast in the Lord. They had become children of God the Father. We saw last week that Paul is praying for them to abound in love and holiness until Christ comes again. And now Paul says, finally, brothers. It's not his last argument. It is the summary of what remains. Here is what Christian life looks like while you wait, he's saying. The big takeaway for that is that Paul is writing these words to Christians. He's not telling people how they can become Christians. He's not giving them a list of the moral requirements whereby they ought to be saved. He is telling us how we ought to live as people who have been saved. Now, I belabor this point. 
because I know that any time we come to a passage in God's word that gives us moral imperatives, there are people in the congregation who get anxious. Some people who get anxious when God gives us commands because we're not sure we're doing enough already. There are some Christians who who always seem to struggle with that assurance of faith, and as a result, they're always looking to their own performance. Am I doing enough? Have I proven to the Lord that I'm someone who ought to be in his family? And to those people, we need to say, your performance is not the basis of your salvation. Christ Jesus is is the basis of your salvation. By faith in the gospel, he gives you a righteousness that you could never attain, even if you could do everything right according to the law, which you can't. So, when we get to these commands, there are some people who get anxious that they're not doing enough. There are other people who get anxious because they don't think they need to be doing anything at all. These are the people who call the pursuit of holiness legalism. They push back when God's word calls them to give up things like pastimes, priorities that they have for their lives that are hindering their walk with Christ. This kind of anxiety is typically aided by the bad application of good theology. And so they will say, now, pastor, don't you know that we're not under the law, but we're under Christ? They'll say, you know, pastor, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of of no help at all. Don't, Don't lay all that weight and all those commands on me. Don't you know, pastor, that we are saved by grace through faith? This is a gift of God, not a matter of works. To which the pastor says, yea and amen. Verily and truly. Right and good. Yes, we agree with those things. But we need to keep reading there in Ephesians. We are saved by grace through faith but not a result of works, but we're also created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. Leon Morris says that as we make the transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, what we need to understand is that because the doctrine is true, there are consequences. There are implications for how we live our lives. It means that our salvation in Christ Jesus is not meant to make us passive in holiness. It's meant to make us participants in holiness. It means that if you are a Christian, your life must look different. That's that little word in the text, ought to. It means must. It means have to. It's a command that the Lord lays upon his children, not in order for you to be saved, but because you have been. All that to get to our first point. The point being that our lives are intended to bring pleasure to the Lord. That is his intention for us. Our lives are intended to bring pleasure to the Lord. Paul says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So far, Paul hasn't said anything directly relating to our sexuality. In fact, at the outset, the language is very general. He uses that Hebrew idea of walking with God, how we ought to walk to please the Lord. You might find it, depending on the version of the ESV that you have, you might find it in the footnote. It ought to be in the main text. How you ought to walk. It means every aspect of your life, every part of your being, each and every tiny little piece. 
And this is where we have to start. We have to start here because misunderstanding the purpose of our sexuality actually begins with misunderstanding the purpose of our existence. One gives birth to the other. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with that formative first question. What is the chief end of man? And that question to which the world gives any number of wrong answers. Our chief end is to make a difference in the world to make it a better place than we found it. Our chief end is to make society, uh, to help it to advance, to advance technology and to advance uh, scientific endeavors and, and, and ex- exploration. Our chief end is to experience the beauty of the world, to help others experience the beauty of the world as well. Wrong, says Paul. Our chief end is to please God. Or, as the Catechism puts it, our chief end is to glorify Him, and to enjoy him forever. This is the pattern that we see among God's people. It's the pattern that we saw in our Savior. This is what his whole existence was for, his human nature, his human ministry. He says in John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 8, he says, I always do the things that are what? Pleasing to him. Jesus knew that his ministry, his life, was meant to bring pleasure to the Lord, not pleasure to himself. This is the pattern that Paul left the Thessalonians. Take a look back in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. This is what the Christian life looks like. All of it. Whether it comes down to how we preach the gospel like Paul, or how we do our work, or how we raise our children, even how we approach our sexuality, the purpose of each and every aspect of our lives is not to seek pleasure for ourselves, or even to do good things so far as we define them. Our lives are intended to bring pleasure to the Lord. And this is an article of faith. By that I mean this is something that we believe because God has revealed it, not something we believe because we have discovered it. Do you understand the difference between those two? The University of Kansas has a student newspaper. And in that student newspaper, there is a sex advice column, probably very much like what you would find in any number of secular magazines. Students and members of the University of Kansas community write in with their questions about love and intimacy, and a woman named Emerson Karsh Lombardo gives her answers. Not the sort of thing that I suggest you go looking for. But in one of the very long responses where she's talking about uh, what she feels to be the oppressive sexual ethic that the American people have inherited from our Puritan forebearers, this is what she says. She writes, The narrative that sex outside of marriage is bad is still an underlying misconception within current society. But if sex is a bad thing, why were our bodies made for the intent of sexual pleasure? She keeps going. She says, this is a question I ask myself and others to encourage empowerment. And her conclusion is, we have nerve endings for a reason. We ought to use them. Do you hear what she's saying? She's using the language 
of intent. She is claiming human purpose. She's saying because we can experience pleasure, we ought to pursue pleasure. In fact, she's going beyond that. She's saying because we can experience pleasure outside the normal traditional boundaries of Christian moralism, we should pursue pleasure outside of the normal Christian boundaries of of Christian moralism. And how does she arrive at that conclusion? Not by reading the Word of God, but based on the existence of nerve endings. Now, I'm going to resist the temptation to latch on to this person who suggests, as we ought to suggest, that our biology drives our identity and not the other way around. But, that aside, you realize that what she's writing reads like a very bad episode of this old house. Somebody puts human sexuality on the table and we say, what is it? And everybody gathers around and goes, I don't know, but I bet we could do this with it. This is only one example, but you can find others if you were looking for them. Again, you shouldn't. But it illustrates what is all around us in our culture and in our unbelieving world. It is the basic human approach from time immemorial. It is the approach that makes our sexuality whatever we can get away with rather than what the Lord has intended it to be. It's the same problem that Paul confronted in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. Some of the people in the community there were going around saying, you know, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's a euphemism. Bodily organs are meant for bodily processes. Bodily processes are meant for bodily organs. You have nerve endings for a reason, in a sense. This is what the people in Corinth are saying. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul replies, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. There's a purpose for our bodies. You realize that. There's a purpose to our sexuality. God has a good intention for the way that he's created us. He's got a good intention for the way that he redeemed us in Christ Jesus. His intention is that we would live in a way that brings pleasure to him. How do you know that? Not because you have nerve endings, but because God has told us. Do you notice there's several references in this passage to the authority of the word of God? Paul says in verse 1, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, he says, you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 8, he says that whoever disregards this teaching disregards not man, but God. This is what our Creator has revealed. This is the Word of God. He tells us that our lives are not meaningless. They're not meant for the the endless pursuit of bodily pleasure or for our own ends or for sexual fulfillment. They're not meant for the pursuit of worldly ambition. They're not meant for the pursuit of family stability. Anything ranging from something we think might be really good to something we might think would be really bad, any of those things short of bringing pleasure to the Lord. And we know it because he's told us. We also know it because the gospel declares it to us. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He always did what pleased him who sent him. 
What was it that pleased him who sent him into the world? It's that he should serve rather than be served. It's that he should lay down his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53 tells us what the pleasure of the Lord was. It says it was the will of the Lord to crush him and to make his soul an offering for guilt. Why? So that we could be saved by grace. So that we could become recipients of salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ, so that, in the language of Ephesians, God could create us as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The gospel is not incidental to what we do with our bodies. It's not disconnected from our work or from our faith, from our conversations, from our sexuality. It is the very purpose for which we were created and why we've been recreated through Jesus Christ. Our lives are intended to bring pleasure to the Lord. In conclusion, I'm joking, this is the second point. With that foundation laid, Paul then applies God's intention directly to the area of human sexuality. And the key uh, idea here, the key concept, is the concept of separation. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's one of the great questions of practical Christianity. How can I know God's will for my life? How can I make the right decisions? How can I know that I'm going in the right direction? And we ask these questions sometimes at the major crossroads of our lives. Should I go to that school or to this one? Should I marry this person? Should I take that career? Should I move to that town? When big things come up, we, we ask this question, what is God's will? What does he want me to do? And some of us are, are more burdened by the, by the what-ifs and the unknowns. We almost wish, we think it would be easier if God would just speak out of the heavens and give us a sort of five-point plan for the rest of our lives. Right? You should marry Sarah, you should move to Massachusetts, you should raise a little family, you should pastor Redeemer Church until you're dead or until they can't stand you anymore. Right? That would be really easy, wouldn't it? If God just laid it all out for us, we wish life was that easy. Wouldn't it be easier if we knew exactly what God's will is, what he wanted us to do? But you already know what God wants you to do. Here it is. God's will for your life, summed up in one word, holiness. This is God's will for you, your sanctification. That's what God wants. That's what he commands you to pursue. That is what he is pursuing in your life, God wants your holiness. Actually, it means that discerning God's will is much easier than you imagine things could be. It means that if you are confronted with a decision between option A and option B, and option A moves you in the direction of sanctification, and option B moves you away from sanctification, option A is God's will for you. It also means that if you're uh, facing a choice between two equal choices that might both move you, as far as you can tell, in the same direction of sanctification, you get to pick whatever one you want. It's literally that easy. 
God wants for you to grow in sanctification. It's that simple. Then again, we might not actually want it to be that simple. We don't want it to be that simple because we already know the score. We know that what moves us in the direction of holiness does not always move us in the direction of comfort. We know that what tends to produce sanctification in us does not always produce that immediate gratification that our nerve endings and our dopamine receptors love so much. Now, sanctification very often is difficult. Holiness means delayed gratification. Holiness very often means saying no to the things that our flesh very much wants to say yes to. That's probably why we tend to ask this question concerning the big decisions in our life and not the small ones. We want to know what's God's will for our career and our college and for our children, but we almost never ask the question, what is God's will for my spare time? What is God's will for my casual conversations? I wonder what God would have me to do with my TikTok feed. What is God's will for my television screen? What would God have me to do with that ebook that I load onto my iPad so that I can read it without anybody else around me having to see the cover and know what I'm actually reading? We don't ask that question about God's will when it comes to those little things because, quite frankly, we already know the answer. And our sinful flesh doesn't like to hear the answer that we already know. So the flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. But if you're a real believer, there's there's some deeper part of you, there's some regenerate part, moved by the Holy Spirit, that actually longs to have this question applied into every tiny little crevice of your life. Paul says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain probably is too weak here to convey the actual idea. When we hear abstain, we probably get this picture that uh, temptation comes knocking and we open the door and say, oh, no, no, not today, thank you. Maybe come back later, I don't know. Maybe the answer will be less, yes, later. Right? Uh, Abstain seems to be a sort of passive, sort of uh, no thank you kind of response. What Paul is telling us here, what he's getting at is absolutely not. Close the door immediately. It conjures up the image of Joseph running coatless from the room where temptation came looking for him. Flee sexual immorality, Paul writes to the Corinthians. It's the same idea here. The J.B. Phillips translation says that God's plan is to make you holy, and that entails, first of all, a clean cut with sexual immorality. That's the idea. A clean cut. That's what's happening here. A decisive separation. In fact, this idea of separation is baked into the idea of holiness in the first place. Uh, Those things in the Old Testament that were holy were the things that were set apart, that were separate from what was common. And so God's holy sacrifices were were set apart from the regular bulls and goats. Uh, God's holy temple was to be separate from idolatry. God's holy people were to be different and separate from the unbelieving nations around them. And Paul carries that idea, and he dumps it into his letter into the Thessalonians, and he says that to be holy means to be separate. It means to have nothing at all to do with what is impure or immoral. And yes, it means watching our actions. 
right? Absolutely. Yes, it means avoiding those websites. Yes, it means not cultivating those deep relationships with somebody of the opposite sex that you secretly think might be able to meet that emotional need that your spouse has as yet been unable to answer for you. Yes, it means all of those things, making a clean cut with sexual immorality, but it also means watching our motives. Right? It also means watching our conversations and our small talk and all those jokes that we throw in there, they're just laced with innuendo because, you know, that's what people like. That's what gets the crowd going. It means watching who we flirt with. It means watching how we present ourselves. It means watching the, all those little clues that we use to communicate an openness to situations that Christians should not at all be open to. Even if at the moment we don't intend to follow through with them, do we? Just a bit of fun, isn't it? Making a clean break with immorality means so far as we are able, avoiding not only what is openly sinful, but also that which moves in that direction. The reality is I could stand here and I could preach against adultery and fornication and homosexual lust and pornography, and I could get lots of silent amens from all of you Presbyterians. Yay and amen. That's good. That's biblical. Right? The language Paul uses of sexual immorality is a broad general category, and all of those sins are legitimate applications to that idea. But if I start to tell you that there are blockbuster movies that Christians should not watch, full stop. If there are best-selling books that Christians should not read, full stop. That's where the accusation of legalism comes in. Hold on there, pastor. What about Christian liberty, we might say? What about the freedom that I have in Christ? Not to be bound by your narrow views of what holiness ought to look like. I'm not out there engaging in anything overtly sinful, so what business is it of anyone else's what I do with my time and my thoughts? Paul's already answered that objection. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He's talking about a clean break. He's talking about a separation between God's people and all sexual sin. This is God's intention for you. God's will is for your holiness that you should be separate from all sexual immorality. And the only way that happens is through the discipline of self-control. God's will is that you abstain from immorality. Verse 4, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. There's a footnote in the ESV. We don't need to get too far into it because I think the main text carries the better idea. There's this debate that's just about as old as the New Testament itself. It it has to do with the translation of the word that shows up as control and the word that shows up as body. Literally, Paul says, each one of you ought to know how to acquire or take possession of his own vessel. Some people have interpreted that, and they've latched onto the acquiring aspect. They said, well, what Paul is saying, that if there is the threat of sexual immorality, you ought to get married. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Actually, I think the point here is a little bit different, and the ESV has it right. The idea is that when Paul mentions a vessel, he's speaking of our human bodies. 
2 Corinthians, Paul says that the apostles had received the treasure of the gospel in vessels of clay. Mortal human bodies, he says. We understand what he's saying. He's, he's telling us to possess our own bodies, to take them under control. He's telling us that holiness is worked out in the daily discipline of self-control. And it is perhaps one of the most unspectacular things that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Right? We read that, and if we look at it with merely human eyes, it seems like bringing a penknife to a grenade fight. Here comes the world with all of its filth and all of its temptation. Here comes our flesh with that itch that, that almost demands that it must be scratched or else. Here comes the devil with all of his candy-coated lies about how you'll never get caught, and you're not going to hurt anybody anyway, and nobody's ever going to know. Here comes all the full weight of one of the most primal temptations known to humanity, and what does Paul say? Have a little self-control. That's the ticket. And if you have any blood in your veins at all, you want to say, is that it? <laughs> is that all you're giving us, Paul? No. no. That's not all he's giving us. The answer is not just self-control as a way to take hold of the situation. The answer is self-control as an exercise of faith. The answer is self-control as a theological statement. Keep reading. God's will is that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. In our day, passion sounds like something that you want. It sounds like something good. Who doesn't want to be passionate about some important topic? Who doesn't want to have somebody else be passionate about them? Now, Paul's speaking of passion as something that is overpowering, though. Passionate lusts are desires that control a person rather than desires that can be controlled. It's the kind of language we might use to speak about addictions in any number of forms, any number of things. Passionate lust is a compulsion that you're not sure you would want to stop even if you could. And Paul says this is what the Gentile world is like. Specifically, this is what the world is like when people do not know God. The unbelievers, he says, are driven by the passion of their lust. They are taken captive to the desire to experience one more glance and one more embrace and one more sensation. And Paul is describing slavery by any other name. Now you're aware, probably, that sexual immorality is normally sold by the unbelieving world under the opposite brand. Not under the brand of slavery, but under the brand of liberation. This is empowerment for you. This is going to make you satisfied. This will make you actualized. This will give you everything that you always wanted. It will be wonderful. And that's a godless approach to sexuality, even if you never end up feeling addicted. That's because it's the approach that makes pleasure our greatest good. It leaves us always chasing some better sensation, because in the end, sensation... That's all we have. That's the best we get. And what happens if at the end of this life you die and you're gone and all you had were your sensations? And did you get enough of them? Did you have the best ones? It's enslaving, you see. 
It's exactly what Paul described in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Then verse 23, he says, Therefore God gave them up. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God about about God for a lie, and they worshipped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. God gave them up. In other words, he gave them exactly what they wanted. He gave them the sexual pleasure that they were after. Not as a blessing, but as a curse. Not as a gift, but as a judgment. But you, dear Christian, you have something better than that. Look down at verse 8 in our text in 1 Thessalonians. It comes in the context of a warning against disobedience, but it's there just the same. If you are a Christian, this is true of you, that God gives His Holy Spirit to you. This is the truth that gives strength to our self-control. The truth is that you know God. The truth is that you know why he has created you. The truth is that you know why he made sex in the first place. And if you are in Christ, you know why he has redeemed you. And if you know that, you also know that his Holy Spirit is at work within you. Producing the fruit of self-control. It doesn't come from you. You understand what Paul is saying? That each of you ought to know how to control your own body. Where does that come from? The power of the Holy Spirit at work in those who believe. Is that all, Paul? That's quite a lot. So when Paul says we need self-control, he's not saying that we're in this alone. He's saying that God himself is with us. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. That's what he says in Philippians. For God is at work in you both to will, to desire, and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. That's God's intention for you. That's why he's called you. It's why he's made you. So that you will bring pleasure to him. So that you will be separated from sexual immorality. So that you will grow in self-control. The Lord takes pleasure in the purity of his people, and this is his work in us. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you are holy, 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 utterly separated from sin and immorality. Yet you, holy Lord, have sent your Son to do your perfect will, to raise us up with him. You now give your Holy Spirit into the lives of those you call to yourself to make us like Jesus Christ, to grow us in holiness and sanctification, to make it full and perfect in that day when we see him as he is. Lord, we pray that you would keep your people unstained from the world, separated for the sake of your name and your glory, 
Oh, Lord, do the work in us that we cannot do in ourselves, but make us participants together with you by your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.